everybody. This is the podcast Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. I'm Josh Newfeld of joshcomics.com. And I'm Dean Haspiel of deanhaspiel.com. And this is the podcast where we break down the 2003 American Splendor scene by scene. The premise of the podcast owes a great debt to Star Wars Minute by Alex Robinson and Pete the Retailer, where they are breaking down the Star Wars movies minute by minute, if you can believe that. Now, we are not going to be doing it minute by minute. We're going to do it scene by scene. Obviously, Star Wars and the Star Wars franchise have a certain cultural cachet and a set of references that people are so familiar with that you can get away with talking about a movie in such intimate details minute by minute. But American all Splendor... all minutia. Yes. American Splendor, the movie, great movie. We both love it, and we have a certain involvement with it, which we'll get into. doesn't have quite the same cachet that Star Wars does but has a lot uh, worth talking about. So we're going to do it scene by scene. And we are indeed talking about the movie American Splendor based on Harvey Picard's work. The movie came out in 2003. Written and directed by Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Polcini. It was based on the work of Harvey Picard and his groundbreaking autobiographical comic series American Splendor. Harvey, of course, was born in 1939, died in 2010, and he burst onto the scene, so to speak, with his self-published comic, American Splendor, in May 1976. And this movie is based on many of his comics, with a lot of extra material added in to kind of stitch it all together. It's a fascinating film, which combines actors playing the real-life Harvey and Joyce, his wife, and various other people, and... It also stars Harvey Picard himself and Joyce Brabner, and it has animation mixed in individual comic panels from the comics, all of that together in a really interesting mix. The film won a number of awards. It premiered at Cannes Film Festival, I believe. No, I think Sundance. It premiered at Sundance, where it won the Grand Jury Prize, but also appeared at, at Cannes. Oh, I know did. that okay. I know that Harvey and his family went there for that. It was also nominated for an Academy Award for Best Screenplay. And was nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress for Hope Davis, who plays uh, Joyce Brabner. And it made many, many best of lists. So, yeah, just to talk a little bit about ourselves and why we're the perfect hosts for this podcast. I am a nonfiction cartoonist. Pretty much all my work has been nonfiction And I'm most well-known for the journalistic account of New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina called A.D. New Orleans After the Deluge, which tracked five different real people and their experiences during and after the storm. I also illustrated the influencing machine, Brooke Gladstone on the Media, which was written by Brooke Gladstone of WNYC, radio host here. And my previous work before that was called A Few Perfect Hours and Other Stories from Southeast Asia and Central Europe, which was my first four-way really into writing an autobiographical travel story. And I really learned how to write my own work because I worked with Harvey all those years illustrating American Splendor and kind of studying the way that he went about writing about his own life. And that sort of trained me in, in writing for comics and, and using real stories as a basis. And then I sort of segued into doing more journalistic stuff, stories about other people's lives. And I've also been a ACA master artist and I was a, won a journalism fellowship. So I've done quite a bit in the comics field in the last number of decades. 
Well, I also have done a few residencies. I was a master artist at the Atlantic Center for the Arts. Uh, I'm a Yado Fellow. I've been there a few times. And I also have won an Emmy for my work on HBO's Bored to Death, created by my pal writer Jonathan Ames. Uh, we also did a graphic novel together called The Alcoholic, published by Vertigo. While working for Vertigo DC Comics, I also drew Cuba My Revolution by Inverna Lopez. I also hopped around and did superhero comics because I love superheroes. I love fiction. And so I've worked a lot for Marvel and DC, a lot, all the publishers basically. I'm currently working on a project for the last two to three years called The Red Hook. It is a webcomic for Line Webtoon, the free app that you read on your phone. I won a Ringo Award for the first season, The Red Hook. Then I produced War Cry, and coming soon is Starcross, the third in the Red Hook saga. I also, my connection to Harvey Picar is working with him a little bit on American Splendor, the comic book series. And then I'm the guy, as I think I mentioned also in this podcast, to talk to Ted Hope, the movie producer, and get the movie basically, it was my idea to get the movie made. And then Ted Hope and, and company went and made the movie. Uh, and as a thank you, I wanted to do something more substantial with Harvey, and that came in the guise of our graphic novel called The Quitter, which was also published at Vertigo DC, which for all intents and purposes is his origin story. And what was really great, not only working with Harvey and you know learning uh, how to observe life and kind of what he did in his comics, it also kind of put me on the map, I feel. I had done, again, superhero stuff, some memoir type stuff, but it wasn't until 2005 when The Quitter was reviewed favorably in the New York Times that I felt like it finally put me on the map. There you go. Yeah, so we both owe a debt to Harvey in a lot of ways, and, and I think in, in a lot of other ways. That background for both of us kind of makes us the perfect guys to undertake this project. So there you go. So, without further ado, we're going to get into this first scene of the movie, which opens in 1950 with a group of kids trick-or-treating on Halloween, and it ends with the young uh, 11-year-old Harvey Picar disgustingly walking away from the trick-or-treating scene and saying, why does everybody have to be so stupid? A common theme throughout Harvey's work, I would say. <laughs> so, let's get right into it. So I, in my notes, in writing down what, what, I, what I saw and heard, and I've seen this movie many, many times, this was the first time that I noticed that, you know, starting with a black screen, you hear the sounds of rolling film, and then someone says, action. That transitions into the sound of what, what sounds like, you know, Star, original Star Trek uh, sounds, like theremin music. Um, something you might hear in an old science fiction movie from the 1950s, actually. And then um, it fades up and onto a doorbell. Uh, and the, there's a caption, like in a comic book, superimposed over the image that says 1950. This is where our story begins, mm -hmm. basically. And a finger rings the doorbell. And then a woman opens it up with candy uh, and reverse angle. And you see these young trick-or-treaters. It's a lineup of kids dressed up in... DC superhero costumes. There's Superman, Batman, Robin. You actually don't see Green Lantern, but she says Green Lantern. Right. Um, I think we see the back of a cape or something. Something but, yeah. like that. And eventually she winds up on this uh, kid who is probably, we thought he's like 
supposed to be 10 years old? Is that the I, idea? I think Harvey in 1950 at a Halloween would have just been, had just turned 11, but yeah. Turned 11. And uh, she's naming all the heroes, and when she comes up to Harvey, who's just dressed up like a normal kid, she goes, well, who are you? And he says, Harvey Picar. And the kids kind of snicker well, to says, each other. Who are you supposed to be? Oh, who are you supposed yeah. to be? That's right. <laughs> and he he kind of gives her a side eye and is like, "Well, I'm Harvey Picar." And then the kids uh, snicker under their masks and say, "Pecker," right? Uh, because a lot, you know, that was a way to make fun of Harvey when he was a child and probably even when he got older. Uh, because of the way his name is spelled, P E K A R, you could interpret that as Pecker uh, if you wanted to. Um, if and you so they kind of laugh. And um, I, then what happens after that is he gets disgruntled, he turns around, he walks away, and he throws his bag of candy onto the street. And Which uh, I found highly unlikely. That's right, as yeah. a kid. <laughs> Although, you know, we, we know that Harvey later on in life uh, was a huge fan of orange soda and candy. So maybe he was making up for that donuts. bag of candy he yeah. lost. And donuts. Yeah. Um, he says, why? And, he, and as he's walking away, he says, why are people so stupid? Uh, and then uh, the scene basically ends in a transitional moment where he turns from young Harvey Picar into adult Harvey Picar. And one of the things I noticed as well, speaking of sound, was so it starts off with the sound of rolling film. Then we get into this like science fiction theremin music uh, to represent, you know, 1950s and Halloween and spooky scary kind of thing and then as he's um transitioning from child to adult uh we get to hear uh jazz uh which if you're a harvey picar aficionado you know that that was one of his greatest loves was jazz but i thought it was interesting to start the movie this way because uh, uh it's about identity or establishing identity sure and you had mentioned to me earlier that this is not the in the original screenplay. This is not how the movie opens. How does it begin with the original screenplay? Yeah. So in, in the original screenplay, uh, the movie opens with a scene that's actually much later in Harvey's life, with a grown-up Harvey Picar suffering under these drugs that he's taking to help f uh, as part of his chemotherapy regime to to fight cancer. Spoiler warning. Sorry, folks. Um, and he's staring at himself in the mirror, and he says to his wife. Am I real? I'm paraphrasing. Am I real or am I just a character in a comic book? And that's because he's been making comic books about his life for so long and these drugs are addling his mind and he's in he's in quite a, a you know, a fragile state. Um, and of course, that that would have been a really interesting way to start the movie because then it opens up on this sort of pseudo comic booky scene with the caption, you know, 1950 or story. And begins. if you think about superheroes, they they often had dual identities. Right, they have two identities. You know, That's right. Batman's Bruce Wayne, Clark Kent Superman. Yeah. Uh, Diana Prince is Wonder Woman, and you know, so on and so forth. And so that would have been a, a cool transition into uh, the superhero characters, and then we arrive back at a young Harvey. Uh, putting his foot down in a way mm -hmm. and saying, saying I no, don't have another identity. I don't have another. I am who I am, right. Harvey Picar. And clearly he knew who he was early on. Right. Uh, so much so that he rejected the idea of, uh, in of a way, of dressing up as anybody else other than As anybody himself. else. Yeah. Not necessarily of heroism, because I don't think that's what that's about. Mm -hmm. But, you know, because he went down a road of enjoying like outlier music and jazz and and doing things in an avant-garde kind of way, maybe he was rejecting the mainstream. And mm -hmm. superheroes at that point probably were somewhat the mainstream. 
even though uh, comic books themselves, the industry has enjoyed a lot of niche behavior, you know, uh, uh, especially in the market, you know, it goes up and down. Right now we're, we're living in a, uh, during a time where uh, the cinematic universes of these uh, Marvel and DC comic book companies have taken over the world, uh, interestingly enough. But anyway, so I think that that was part of what was happening in that, you know, first minute, that first scene is really him putting his foot down and establishing I not only am I different from the mainstream, but I am who I am. And I'm going to own this. Yeah, I love it. And also it is it, I'm glad you mentioned the, the comics of that period, because though I think superheroes were mainstream in 1950, sure. there was a lot of other types of, of comics that were being made um, just just because I looked it up and I'm obsessive this way. Um, the Haunt of Fear, Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror, all these AC, oh, the comics, AC comics all comics. debuted in 1950. So horror comics were really coming into their own because this was before the Senate hearings and the burning of comics and all that stuff. And was, what's his name, Wortham? Um, yeah, he hadn't he hadn't written his He hadn't his, written his uh, dissertation yet. yet, but but he basically declared comics as for delinquents, or yeah. creating delinquency. And, and creating juvenile delinquency and the Senate held hearings and people ended up mm-hmm. Burning their comics and tons of comic companies went out of business, but this was that was in like 1954, 55. So this is a little bit before that, when there were lots of other types of comics. There were romance comics, yes. there were war comics, there were western comics, there were crime comics. Right. So it is interesting thinking back on that that that's the milieu that Harvey grew up reading, not just superhero comics, but all these other kinds of comics. And in a way, maybe that gave him the freedom to think that there was a way to make comics in 1975, 1976 that were not superhero comics and were also not like raunchy underground comics, but were this third way Mm -hmm. of of Mm -hmm. real life um, stories about everyday life. So, um, yeah, but I love love what you have to say about identity and stuff because that is... That, that is so much part of what this film is about is all these different identities of Harvey Pekar as interpreted by uh, his collaborations with all these other artists because Harvey was a writer of comics but he never drew a single comic book. Yeah, and, and the movie expresses uh, cinematically, it shows, you know, different adaptations and collaborations between, you know, directors and actors and artists, you know, all, they're all kind of adapting Harvey Pekar's world and life, uh, even down to Harvey himself showing up and, you know, kind of in a way performing a Harvey Pekar character. Right. You know? And here we have a kid, Daniel Tay, is the actor who plays the young Harvey Pekar, who um, was also in the movie Elf that came out in 2003, the very same year this Did came out. Did he play out. an elf? He plays the, the kid that uh, the Will Ferrell elf character uh, ends up coming and living in his house so he's sort of like his comedic uh sidekick throughout the movie i think i don't remember the movie all that well but i remember that he kind of resented this new person who joined their household um that's funny and then you know as the movie progresses they grow right more happy together but it's sort of funny that he um those were his big movies of that year american splendor and elf and i i think he's um oh he said later on i thought it was the, so same was the same year. Same year. But what happened? Yeah. Like, what did he do in 2017, 2018? Anything? He does not act anymore. From oh. from his IMDb page, it seems like after about 2009, he stopped appearing. So maybe he's right. gone on to do uh, more more uh, productive things than than saying lines that other people wrote into a movie camera. But it really was a unique movie, even to this day. When you when you watch it, not many movies have been made like it. Um, in terms of like incorporating, 
you know, a, a, a mix of, uh, you know, documentary kind of with, you know, I hate to use the word fiction, but let's call it adaptation mm-hmm. with, you know, comics art. And, and, and jazz also is like a fusion of things sometimes. That's, and I feel like that's, that's true. The movie's like a, is one big jazz piece in a way, you know, starting with the, the filmmakers themselves probably introducing the idea that this is going to be a mix yeah, with the so, rolling film and someone saying action. So do you feel like their choice in the end of not including that opening scene of the grown-up Harvey looking in the mirror and asking that question was a wise choice instead to just roll right into this sort I of think, origin story of the young Harvey Picar? I think it, it would be interesting to see the contrast, you know, and, and then weigh against it. But I do sometimes wonder... If you see, in this case, he probably would have been very sick and, and dealing yeah, with cancer. Yeah, it would be a pretty bummer way so to like start So, like, you start a... with someone dying, which yeah. I think that, that trope has been done to death. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive the pun. But, you know, I think maybe they decided against it. And because it's so strong later when it comes, when it enters the film later, yeah. that part. Yeah. I feel and like... And you wouldn't want to run it twice. You wouldn't want to have it no. at the beginning and then also come through again. And you're anticipating it maybe, too. Again. Yeah. So, they took the anticipation away. They still established... Uh, young Harvey's attitude, as it were. Uh, but there is a film that 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 I saw. Oh gosh, when did this come out? There's a movie that Jack Black stars in called Bernie. Have you seen this movie? No, but I remember uh, reading about it. It's, it's a, about a real life story so, about a guy who kills a woman that he worked for. Basically, it's a guy in Texas, yeah, who worked for a woman uh, played by uh, Shirley MacLaine mm. and Matthew McConaughey's in it. And it's directed by Richard Linklater. Okay, good director. You know, Solid. he could have been interesting American Spender as well. True, true. Um, but he, uh, but but the movie, the thing that's interesting about what they do, besides tell a really fun and cool story and, and great performances, is that uh, they keep cutting to characters that talk about uh, the relationship. So we get this other kind of like hindsight in a way. And it wasn't until the end of the movie I realized that all the other characters that weren't like the name uh, actors were were the real life people of that town. Oh, okay. So it does an interesting mix, right? Right. Again, of like documentary with and they're sort lack of, of commenting term, on the 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 story as it unfolds. Well, they're commenting on it, but they're also adding value in terms of like just perpetuating the story right. and telling it in its chronology you know but it's not like those same people those real life people are portrayed specifically by actors no. in the film they're basically playing themselves but because it's kind of a talking head parts yeah. of the movie yeah they don't necessarily interact okay with the, they're like the townspeople you know almost like the jury of right. the town they're the, kind the, of the greek chorus the greek chorus yeah, exactly i like that you know so um just getting back to the 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 halloween uh trick-or-treating scene um did you ever go so you grew up in new york city yep. and uh i grew up out in southern california so i think we had very different um childhoods and, and trick-or-treating uh experiences because i I was surprised when I moved here sort of in my, you know, mid-teens that people didn't trick-or-treat in the same way that they did. But when you of, moved here, you moved to Brooklyn, so yeah. you still had the idea. It was a little bit more of like house-to-house, but this apartment right. trick-or-treating. You grew up in an apartment in the Upper West Side. How did trick-or-treating work? Did apartments. you do it at stores or did you go to people's apartments? I believe, if my memory serves me, we would, you know, go up and down the elevator, uh-huh. all the different floors. <laughs> And then from and that, just keep knocking on each door, just knocking on doors, and then <laughs> possibly then go 
maybe like you said to stores nearby yeah. and possibly go to another building okay and then there was probably a halloween party you know oh, that but, sounds fun. Uh, so would it be pretty limited like you might just go to your building and that would be it or would yeah you... i mean you come back with a nice little hall yeah. because if you're in a building that had kids that you know i live in a building right now there are no children so right. there are no trick-or-treaters right, you right. know at all yeah. and actually when trick-or-treating does happen on halloween uh, and the kids are roaming the streets. I have a fire escape. I sit out there sometimes, and I just look down and I just check out the costumes. But it is a do you different spit scene. On the kids? No, <laughs> no, no. You would never Spoil do something like that. A lot of hot water, <laughs> mommy. Um, but but seeing you know like so the movie version is clearly a bunch of kids going house to house. Yeah, sort so of I very standard suburban. That's what you style. experienced when you were. Yeah, a kid. that was more the the method in in my day, but. Um, we also didn't have like store bought costumes. We, I I always was was like rocking the homemade costumes or ones that you my did mom. You did in high school a lot too. Well, in high school, so yeah, let's talk about high school. So <laughs> we, you and I, we went to music and art high school, now right. now known as Laguardia, right. and that was a school with some very creative uh, costumers and just creative people in general. So Halloween was a big deal at our school. In fact, do you remember that at one point I had created a character. Uh, there was a band called that my brother's friends were called Rex Vector. Uh-huh. And I think that's what it was called. And then I kind of designed a mascot character that, you know, was basically my character, just like this kind of Who's le- like a, a sort of vigilante serial killer. Boba Fett and Leatherface, right. you know, from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> yeah. And it got to the point where I mean, now we have cosplaying like everywhere all the time. Right. It's not even it at was, a comic convention. It's like yes. you walk outside in the street right. and people are dressed up. Sure. Same thing happens in Japan. I mean, it's everywhere. Um, but I was doing that in, in high school, like after Halloween or before, you know, like I would just walk around with a kind of little parachute pants with a loop and a meat tenderizer and <laughs> this weird mask that sometimes I'd walk in the hallways. So whether it was Halloween or not, did not, didn't matter. Didn't matter. And I can't tell you why. I don't know why I did that. It but, was the eighties, but that was the kind of costume. Cause I always feel, feel that Halloween is about horror cause I love horror films. Mm, mm. So uh, and Halloween the movie is fantastic, and, and there's a whole Never franchise. Never seen it. You haven't seen Halloween the movie. It's fantastic to this day. Like like American Splendor, it holds up. All right. Um, but uh, so I I yielded toward the the scary mm-hmm. side of Halloween because that's the day that the evil spirits are the strongest, and the whole point of being scary is to shoo them away. All right. Them. But yeah. you. Yeah. Do you remember the costumes I, I had? I remember each and every one of them. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, I'm not sure why or how it came to me. Um, I, I kind of became known at Music and Art for my um, my giant billboard type costumes. So freshman year, I was a late pass. <laughs> I basically took the late pass that we had at our school and I blew it up to, you know, three by two foot board that i wore on my chest that i hand replicated the entire uh late pass and uh you do that by your you were an only child i was an only child a a lonely child a lonely child (laughs) um yeah so i did that that was a big hit uh freshman year so i came back sophomore year as a delaney card i don't think too many people know what a delaney card is um it was definitely a pre-computer um it was it was this tiny little card with all these numbers and symbols on the front and the back that basically had all your vital information and the 
teachers kept it in their books and they were able to keep your attendance throughout the entire year based on this tiny little card. Do you remember um, uh, a teacher I think we both had, Bonnie Le- Lechner or Lechner? Yeah, yeah, English teacher. English teacher. Yeah. Was it Lechner or Lechner? Lechner? I think it's Lechner. Okay. But so I found her somehow online uh, via email or something somewhere. And I want to say it was like six years ago when I wrote her, just saying nice. she was one of my favorite teachers, and you know, and she wrote me back and she says, "You're one of my favorite students. I still have your Delaney card." Oh, that is that is, <laughs> and a I had true a mad homage. crush on her. Oh, I had that's a mad awesome. Crush on her. <laughs> she still she kept her, the kept my her Delaney favorite card. students Delaney cards. <laughs> Um, yeah, so Delaney card, sophomore year, th- uh, junior year, I was a subway pass, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, you know, with the current month uh, emblazoned on it, the right color, because every month you'd get a different card That's with right. different color. Um, and then uh, my senior, our senior year, I was a ID, LaGuardia ID. It was our first mm-hmm. year at the new building at Lincoln Center, and I was um, an ID card. And, that and you're was, such a baseball fan. I'm surprised you never, were you ever a baseball card? Well, I tried to keep it always like school centered somehow. Yeah. yeah, school or getting to school right. kind of thing. Which is actually probably one of the <clears throat> scariest things is school. So it kind true. of true. That's true. There you go. They, it fits. So you were keeping in yeah. line. But yeah, our Halloween at at LaGuardia was quite memorable, and there was there was the the, the uh, what was it that um, Shannon was the Keebler. The Keebler oh, elves with right. the car and everything, and they came out. They drove up outside of school, dressed up as the Keebler elves, and Keebler started elves tossing, tossing cookies, cookies at everybody. And then weren't they one year tossing crest? cookies? Literally tossing cookies, not the, the, the not cavity creeps and crests. That's right, they were the cavity creeps. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it was amazing times. I was just talking to Shannon today. I talked to him a lot. There these you days. go. I remember uh, in costume. I assume. <laughs> I remember, um, you know, usually if I ever. Uh, dressed up for Halloween. It was probably like some spooky, scary horror thing. But uh, I was an assistant to uh, the great uh, illustrator, cartoonist, Bill Sienkiewicz, uh, who worked on Moon Knight yeah. and Electra Assassin and sure. uh, so many great comics. Uh, uh, Daredevil, Kingpin, graphic novel, and tons of great comics. And he told me a really funny thing that happened to him at a Halloween once where he was invited to a party and he got there and he realized... He had no costume, and they were calling him out on that. And, you know, that's how I am these days. You know, like, I'll go to a party, but I'm not going to dress up for it. I don't want to. When, when is the last time that you actually dressed up for Halloween? I would feel you like say? I dress up within the last decade, but I can't tell you what that... Oh, I wear, I wear a mask. You okay. know, Jason Little, who's one of our my studio mates and a mutual friend of ours, uh, hosts a Halloween uh, party every year. Yes. And I'll get a mask. I'll okay. Get something so what like was? Something. You remember the last? It's like a black mask. I look creepy. Okay. Nobody wants to talk to me. Don't you have like Hulk hands somewhere in I your house? I have Hulk hands, and I recently uh, got Thing hands. Thing hands. Uh, nice. Another studio mate of mine, Krista Cassano, got me the Thing hands. Okay. Uh, and I love that they talk. Like it's clobbering time with the Hulk. It's Hulk smash. Oh, do you like smash them you together? Smash them, and then oh, they nice. So Bill Sienkiewicz <laughs> was at this party. He was uh, underdressed, as it were, uh, right? And he said. Uh, he decided that he w- he would go into the person's bathroom and try to find something. And what he found was a box of Band-Aids. And so he went into the bathroom, took a Band-Aid, came out with a Band-Aid like on his arm. Okay. That was a- it. About 10 minutes later, he went back in, 
and he put a band-aid on his forehead. Nice. By the end of the night, he had like 30 band-aids all over him. And he so, and I don't think he was drinking, but he said people were getting drunk and starting to kind of freak out because his costume get, kept was growing. Evolving, right. He was, <laughs> was developing, right? And he was getting more hurt, apparently. Right. As the <laughs> I night thought that was such on. a brilliant solution. Yeah, that, that's that's uh, pretty smart. I would have put them all on at once and blown <laughs> no, my wad. No, he let it. He let it, it yeah. <laughs> nice work, Bill. I guess the one question I had, but I don't really know if this is something that you're um, an expert on or anything, but this movie was co-produced. You, you see these you know, various logos mm-hmm. as, as the movie opens up. HBO, Fine Line Features, Good Machine, right. kind of all consecutively after each other. And I've right. always kind of wondered exactly what that all means in terms of like they're all the production companies or distributors. Well, HBO is like the network. Okay. If you think about it. And sometimes... So they like had the right... They, they had the right to... But this was a film that actually premiered on movie screens. Well, think about today. Amazon. Uh, right. They, like like uh, Jonathan Ames uh, has a movie adaptation of his book, You Were Never Really Here, that is produced by Amazon, but was released in theaters okay. first. In fact, it and then they have dibs Con, on it. And I think it won awards nice. at Con. So... You know, sometimes you'd bring a movie to a network or, or a, a delivery system, as right. you would say today. You know, they slap their logo on it and they're now okay. part of the, the deal. Gotcha. Sometimes they are in cahoots with you and develop it. Uh, sometimes they release it only, well, today it would be streaming or only on. But they try to get, um, the reason why you get into festivals, if you can, is to get an award. So, because an award isn't necessarily about how great you are, but what it does for the common person, because there's so much uh, stuff to to check out, it, it separates. It goes, oh, this one something, maybe it's good. I'll go check it out. You know, gotcha. That's gotcha. all it does, really. Okay. All right. And then so- Good Machine did, did a ton of movies, and I worked with uh, Ted Hope. I was his assistant, and we can get into that story yeah, later. We're going to definitely get into that, um, which is why I brought it up. But um, yeah, the only other notes I had were. Um, the stuff about uh, these kids that, that the young Harvey goes trick-or-treating with that seem to know him but not really be good friends with him, to say the least, since the first thing they do is start making fun of his name. And the whole, we talked about that name thing, uh, being a, a continuing uh, reference or something that comes up later in the Harvey Picar name story. Did you think that he was friends with them? I, I think he might I mean, have been a reluctant friend. Clearly they knew him because of they could make fun of him. Right. They know, like, maybe they're classmates of his, but uh, right. clearly not good friends. And But in reading his comic books did you did he ever have friends he grew up with i mean i think you know sometimes he had people he talked to on the street or right. at the va hospital or girlfriends or wives yeah but i mean see or personal know. friendships don't seem to be something that really um were highlighted in his comics especially in the later years when it seemed to really focus more on his co-workers and his and his marriage and then his adopted daughter yeah he didn't seem to be the kind of guy that would sit on a porch and drink a, a beer yeah you know, like he was more. It's just those weren't the stories that he found compelling to to turn into comic book stories, right? But he seemed to be for a guy who was kind of an expert. You have to like really dig deep, and I'm sure he listened to a lot of records. Yeah, you know, he was always freelancing, even though he kept this this job that grounded him, that paid the rent, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't his passion. His passion was uh, the avant garde and yeah. and the different. You know, the outliers, the niche. So that's what he celebrated. Do you, I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways, I would say there are some things that I find that you personality wise and career wise really um, overlaps a lot with the type of character that that Harvey presents himself as being, you know, this sort of like uh, 
mm-hmm. you know, a tough guy with a heart, um, I would say. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I guess I just want to ask, as a viewer of this film, as a reader of his comics, did you find that that kind of personality is a compelling one that you're interested in reading about? Or do you think it works in a movie like this? At the heart of this movie is a comedy. I would say a lot of it is played for laughs. And the main character is a character that we can kind of laugh at a little bit. Sure. I, I mean, but, you know, I I hate the term dramedy, but it feels more like a dramedy. Sure. Because of the dramatic aspects. Yeah. Uh, it is meaningful. It has a lot of heart. Uh, the veneer is this curmudgeon, grumpy asshole, you know? <laughs> hey, this um, is a, a family podcast oh. here. <laughs> <laughs> and... But uh, that's how I can relate to him, you mm-hmm. know, like kind of like uh, a little caustic, you mm-hmm. know, at times, but really like, you know, cares about what he loves and wants people to be turned on to that. Yeah. You know? And I feel like your career as a cartoonist sort of embodies a lot of those same qualities, even though your work has gone off into a lot of different directions and crosses over into the genre storytelling, you know, in a way that Harvey never did. I feel like there's definitely a connection between this persona of Dean Haspiel that you've created in your comics and, sure. and that persona of Harvey Picar, which was close to real life, but was a persona none the same. And in a way that kind of brings us full circle to how this the it does start- right back to the beginning of that movie and i think that the difference is instead of being relating to the very independent harvey Picar that just wanted to own his identity i might have been wearing like the costume but telling a memoir story through exactly. the costume the superhero telling the, Your the superhero umbrella memoir. character as you always used to say that's right just to flip it on you yeah like you went from because we grew up together drawing our little superhero comics and i continued that route in a lot of ways including memoir or semi-autobiographical, but you went more towards semi-autobiographical and then journalism. Mm-hmm. You were uh, became more nonfiction as I continued to express myself in fiction. So, like, how do you relate to Picar in that way? Well, uh, yeah, I relate to him more as sort of this documentarian of life, you know, mm. as someone who really um, was interested in in sort of the, the, the details of everyday life that, that when we get caught up in fantasies and other people's stories and superheroic science fiction and so forth, we kind of, in a sense, are undervaluing the vitality of our own lives and the mm. importance of our own everyday lives. Mm-hmm. So to me, I found a real inspiration in Harvey's, you know, absolute devotion to just sticking to normal people's normal everyday lives. So he was like one of the original bloggers, if you think about it, a blog, like a blog comic, you know, in a lot of ways. Do you ever read Bukowski, Charles Bukowski? I've never read any of his work. I think yeah. you'd be like, I came to him later than you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And I think there, there's a reason why is because I probably couldn't have, I don't know if I would have liked what I was supposed to read. Like yeah. I rejected on the road by Jack Kerouac and I should probably oh, that read it now. A great book. But I, I wasn't read. prepared for it or something was sure. going on that I didn't, wasn't ready. And I came to Bukowski later and I realized that Bukowski, even though he and Pekar are very different, obviously there was a similarity in terms of their like, kind of like, blogging about real life you mm. know w- without uh, a payoff mm-hmm. not no not necessarily there wasn't really any cliffhangers yeah, you know yeah like like we have more today even with memoir mm-hmm. you know it's got to start with a punch and end right. with a punch you right, know in right. a way yeah harvey really that's what makes his work so fascinating to me even to this day is that i'll read his stories and then i'll try to understand like how they work in terms of structure and they don't follow any of the normal rules and yet somehow they really really work so 
he really got at something with his with his stuff, and um, I don't think it's something you can teach. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about a lot of this stuff in future episodes. So that was great. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Come back next time for the next scene of Scene by Scene with Josh and Dean. And signing off, I'm Josh Newfeld. And I'm Dean Haspiel. Thank you. Thanks, guys. 